salutations and welcome to spiritual blitherings, philosophical ponderings, and everything ramblings at the Hopeful Humanist Cafe. Once again, we're going to continue to examine ideas and flow about the good life, intentional living, and resources for our spiritual toolbox. So this is a part two to an episode I just produced last night that was entitled Depression and Commonplace Insanity. And in that episode, I was focusing on the causes of depression. I referenced one of three resources that I wanted to showcase, and that was a website from CAMH, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. And I identified that if you navigate through that site, you can come to a PowerPoint slide presentation on depression. And that when you went to that website and you went to that PowerPoint, it identified that you know, when it comes to understanding the causes of depression, we're not sure. There's a lot of questions that are still outstanding and need to be asked. So I like to have that as my prelude to the quote for today, for this part two, and I'll explain the reason or my motivation for creating a part two for the episode that I produced last night. So the quote for today comes to us from John Ralston Saul, who wrote a book called The Doubter's Companion, a dictionary of aggressive common sense. And he has this quote Well, he has a definition. He's offering a definition for a word, answers. And it goes as such. Answers, a mechanism for avoiding questions. This might be called obsessional avoidance or a manic syndrome. It is based on the belief that the possession of an education, particularly if it leads to professional or expert status, and above all, if it involves some responsibility or power, carries with it the obligation to provide the answer to every question posed in your area of knowledge. This has become much more than the opiate of the rational elites. It may be the West's most serious addiction. So I, I thought I would introduce this part two with this quote from John Ralston Sull, because I want to emphasize that my goal in terms of the Hopeful Humanist Project really is to not only provide resources for people, but also to challenge myself and others to think, to ask questions. And if at the end of the day, we're able to ask intelligent questions, then I think we're making progress in terms of making the world a better world. And that uh, it demonstrates that some kind of deliberate thinking is taking place, that we're engaging in critical thinking. And any article, any resource that I share here in this forum at the Hopeful Humanist Cafe, I hope that people will take it upon oneself to go to the resource and uh, read it, explore it, and ask some questions. Because in terms of my interpretation of whatever information or data I'm sharing, I could be in the wrong. I could be making an error of some sort that uh, could be quite significant. So I introduced three resources. The first was reference to the CAMH website. And then I, I spent some time talking about a book by Johan Harry called Lost Connections. And then I briefly, when I attempted to talk about or invite 
um, listeners to think about a potential 10th cause of depression, I, I invited people to perhaps consider that whether it's insight or insight without action or reflecting about the perennial questions and i.e. one of those being, you know, what is the meaning of life and what is the meaning of my life, that perhaps in addition to these things, um, for me also, one would be confronting the absurd, and that's a whole big discussion right there, that uh, pain and, and being in physical pain, suffering from a, a chronic physiological illness could lead someone to experience depression. And as such, that one might find there could be benefits to taking a online course that is offered through the local integrated health units throughout Ontario that has, it's called Better Choices, Better Health. And it explores ways to self-manage chronic pain. So I explored those three resources and I explored the uh, possible causes of depression, but I felt that I, I, I missed an important point when reviewing the CAMH website. And I think that in addition to, you know, going through the education se section and going through the public education opportunity to access those different PowerPoints, that when you go to the hospital tab underneath, you'll find health information. And there's this incredible encyclopedia of information. It goes from A to Z, and it provides information about mental health and addiction, right? So you can click on whatever letter category you want to start with. So I, let's say I'm going to go to D, and I'm going to click on there, and it gives me, uh, I can explore, you know, information about dual, di dual diagnosis, drug use, depression, dementia, etc. So right now with the cr across Canada, the national crisis that's taking place with opiates and fentanyl, someone might think, you know, how can I become more educated about what's going on? What are these substances? How do these substances impact me? Well, you can go to the CAMH website and you can look through this encyclopedia of information and it's going to give you, for instance, if you wanted to explore more about fentanyl, you can find street fentanyl, uh, information about that, and fentanyl type of prescription opioid. And it's just an incredible amount of information that can help us make educated choices about actions we might need to take in our life in terms of maybe getting help for ourselves if we're struggling or getting help for loved ones. There's also, if you go to the home page, it tells you about the different kind of care program and services that are offered. For instance, if someone is uh, struggling with complex mental issues or a mood and anxiety disorder, services are provided across a continuum of different concerns related to addiction and mental health. I think that this, this is definitely a bookmark-worthy website that we need to put into our, our spiritual toolbox. You can also go to uh, another section and it will just give you, uh, if you go to the front page, current information that's that's uh, cutting edge information in terms of research that's taking place. So I felt I didn't really do justice to 
the CAMH website and I felt like I needed to do a little bit more in terms of making sure that I hit home some of the benefits that someone might experience if they spent a little time browsing through the CAMH website. I shared with you that another opportunity in terms of a resource would be the Better Choices Better Health program, six-week program. When you sign up eventually before the program starts and, and the registration's online and it's free, they send you a, a textbook to your house full of current, up-to-date, helpful information about how to make sure you feel empowered when working with healthcare professionals, learning about the difference between acute and chronic healthcare conditions, and different ways that you can manage symptoms connected to different chronic healthcare situations. So I think that it's a great way to build community, and it's a six-week course and allows you to share with other people while you're learning information about struggles that you're having, things that you're celebrating, problems that you're trying to overcome, different difficult emotions that you're struggling with, and you can share and then provide feedback to other participants in the program and support one another. So definitely, it's a really powerful resource, and the, and the fact that it's free is quite incredible. I have to say that's uh, an opportunity I don't I don't unfortunately think is available to everyone, but it, it is here in Ontario and I, I believe it is in Alberta as well. So those are two resources that you could put into your toolbox for sure. The other thing I'm encouraging you to do is to read the book by Johan Harry. Now I went to my local library and it is available. I mean it was released just in January of this year. If you're not fortunate enough to have it in your local public library. Sometimes if you go in and you make a request, they'll make the purchase for you so you don't have to spend the money. My whole goal here is to try to help people discover resources that have quality content, are accessible, and, and are free. When I was focusing yesterday on the causes of depression, I thought that perhaps... I should, I should also at least mention in, in a kind of concise way the different kinds of treatment that are available for people who might have some concerns about uh, managing depression as it might be manifesting itself in one's life. So you can, there are three kind of approaches to treating depression. And the first would be pharmacotherapy. And that is treating a illness with medication. So you would have to see a psychologist, psychiatrist, get your diagnosis, and then a psychiatrist would be able to, um, or, or doctor would be able to prescribe the necessary medication to help treat the illness that you're struggling with. So this brings me to something I should flesh out a little bit more in terms of the Johan Harry book. So when we're talking about depression, even though he's presented a case that the traditional narrative that's been presented is in fact not supported in research, that it's a low serotonin level and a brain chemical imbalance, that lack of evidence doesn't necessarily suggest that there are there is no benefit 
to taking antidepressants or to embarking upon a pharmacotherapy approach to managing your diagnosis of depression. There's research that indicates that for short periods of time, once you find the right medication, because usually there's this process of having to, to test and try different medications and different dosages to kind of get it right, and that once you do get it right through this communication process with one's doctor, then there can be short-term benefits to treating the depression with antidepressants. So there's, there's this thing called the Hamilton test that we, that's used to measure depression. And this Hamilton test goes from a scale of zero to, you know, you're doing good to 51, as Johan Harry said, at which point it's like, you know, you're going to be jumping in front of a train. You're emotionally dysregulated. Things aren't going well. And the benefit of taking a antidepressant would be that you can improve your score by 1.8 points on the scale. So wherever you are on the scale, if you're taking an antidepressant, you can improve, move towards the zero point in that direction by 1.8 points. The thing that Johan Hari wants us to think about, however, is that according to research, people can improve their Hamilton score by up to six points by just getting a regular healthy dose of sleep. And so, you know, in terms of significant outcomes, it makes you think, makes you think that, is this the best approach for me, considering that side effects of medications are very real in terms of they can impact sexual dysfunction, they can impact weight gain you know, create uh, other complications in one's life. So, I mean, if you're getting regular sleep and plus you're taking an antidepressant, I mean, I guess if you add it up, you could be improving your Hamilton score by almost eight points. The thing to think about, though, and, you know, that's that's the whole point of my initial quote, right? Like, the goal is to help us challenge ourselves to ask some questions and not necessarily get caught up in it a specific answer and, and walk away without any more critical reflection. We need to ask some questions. So the question could be, is if I'm struggling with depression, is pharmacotherapy the way to go for me? And the answer could be yes, because for some people, they're getting some very real results and some statistically significant impact is taking place, i.e., you know, they're feeling better. They're reporting that they're doing better. They're noticing things that are happening in one, one's noticing things that are happening in one's life that are saying, this is an improvement and these are the things I'm doing. Now, another approach would be psychotherapy, also identified as talk therapy, where you meet with a professional who has experience with a number of different tools, cognitive behavioral therapy, emotion-focused therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, a different array of tools that can be used to help a person navigate the 
depression that one is experiencing. And when you do that, you're not just kind of taking a bio-neurological approach to your depression. You are taking a biocycle. So, well, I guess it's if you're not taking medication, it wouldn't be as much the biological, um, but the, the psychosocial aspects of one's life are being looked at. So, you know, like, did you lose your job? You know, when you go to work, do you feel valued? You know, do you have some kind of status where you're being recognized. So now we're back to what Johan Hari was talking about in terms of those different causes of depression. And if you're feeling connected with oneself, with others, and with one's environment, then reports of emotional wellness go up, right? So talk therapy is an important part. And in terms of like, feeding and extinguishing the fire of good emotional health. You know, we might say that when I do these things over here, I don't do so well. When I don't get a good sleep and I don't take my medication and I don't talk about what's going on, I notice my my depression gets worse. Likewise, when I take my medication, if I'm taking my medication, if I go to my counselor and I talk about what's going on, if I do get good sleep, if I get regular exercise, I notice the fire of emotional wellness burns bright, right? And in addition to pharmacotherapy and psychotherapy, we also have psychoeducation where, you know, you can become aware of, and I think like that's what I'm hoping to achieve right here, that this, this discussion and encouraging myself and others to think about the 10th cause, you know, is there a 10th cause? Uh, for depression is a way of engaging in psychoeducation. And for me, an important part of psychoeducation is becoming aware of oneself, knowing oneself, that when we, you know, we know what one believes and what one values and what one intends and what one is interested in, this makes a difference when, when we recognize one's strengths. This makes a difference in us being able to come closer to ourselves and to have greater levels of emotional wellness. And if we have greater levels of emotional wellness, I think that we'd be creating a happier life and we would be on track for the happier quest, right? So part two today was an important kind of follow-up for me because I wanted to link this discussion to the happier quest, right? And there are things that we can do in terms of feeding the fire of emotional wellness. And they could consist of, depending on what one's action plan is, of getting an antidepressant to help us with, uh, to treat the, the depression that one might be struggling with. That could be a part of the action plan. It could be engaging in counseling services where we meet a counselor, we meet a treater, we meet a helper, we meet a social worker, we meet a psychologist, we meet a psychiatrist, and we talk about what's going on and we become aware of you know the total lived experience. And then we could also engage in those pursuits, those educational pursuits ourselves, you know, adult learning projects. And as I shared in episode one, for me, the whole Hopeful Humanist Cafe is an adult learning project. It's a leisure project. It's it's you know a self-education process. It's a self-development process, a self-curriculum for wellness. 
And that's what I hope to achieve with this discussion here. So I didn't want to lose sight of really covering the benefits of the different resources that I introduced in the previous episode, which I guess these are kind of like, uh, it's these two, episode four and episode five, it's kind of like a hybrid episode. And uh, I, I felt that when I did some critical reflection that there's some things that I I didn't want to overlook, I didn't want to lose sight of. I think, too, it's important to make sure that we have an understanding of what we're talking about, because depression could mean a lot of things to different people in terms of firsthand subjective experiences of this thing that we're, we're calling depression. So I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't also include a, a definition of, you know, what is depression? What is, you know, I, I haven't done that up until this point. I, I've been kind of talking about something as if we all have an understanding about what it is. And uh, so I should define the term. So according to CAMH, that PowerPoint on that PowerPoint slide presentation on depression, it, it says, what is depression? Well, we all feel sad, down, or blue at times, often following a difficult event. But after a while, the sad mood starts to lift, and we get back to our normal routine. For some people, however, the mood lasts for months and becomes a mood disorder known as depression. This disorder, also called clinical depression or major depression, can make it difficult to do daily tasks. At its worst, it can make people try to end their lives. So I think that uh, in the new DSM-5, that's that's a book um, called Diagnostic Statistic Manual for Mental Illness, and it is a, a product created by the American Psychiatric Association, and it was just reformulized and reorganized and reconceptualized, I believe, in 2013. So, you know, previous to other editions of the DSM. I, the previous one was the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual for Mental Health Text revi Revisions um, 4, so DSM 4 TR. And uh, in it, when they were talking about depression, they had a particular list of symptoms that had to be checked off to determine if someone was struggling with depression. I think with the new DSM-5 that there's been some changes and that uh, after two weeks of people are struggling with some severe negative low effect, that that would meet the definition of one of the versions of depression that are identified in the uh, DSM-5. The thing that is different about the DSM-4-TR with the text revisions and the DSM-5 is that uh, in the previous one, they had something called the grief exclusion. And this is something that uh, led to a lot of kind of questions about the initial thought of depression being a chemical imbalance and, uh, based on low serotonin levels in the synapses in the brain, because they found that depression very much resembled grieving, that when someone lost a loved one, that they looked the same. And well, if that was the case, if there was kind of an exception to the chemical imbalance causal explanation for depression, perhaps there could be other exceptions. And that led to 
research about the other nine causes of depression as presented by Johan Harry, based on the research that he did of experts in the field studying different aspects of depression. So that grief exclusion was left out of the DSM-5. I think that's significant because that means that if someone, let's say a 16-year-old young soul, a young man becoming, discovered in the wee hours of the morning that his father had passed away and was in, in a state of shock, was trying to navigate that tragic and unexpected reality of loss. In the, if that person was at a certain historical period that was being covered by the DSM-4 TR, you know, could go in to see a healthcare professional and they're saying, oh, well, you know what? Yeah, you're depressed because you lost someone you love about, someone you love. And, you know, there was room for that grieving process to unfold over weeks and months. And it would be seen as a natural, inevitable, and let's say biological process. But with the DSM-5, they've removed the grief exclusion, the grief exception. And so now new professionals entering the field are not being made aware of this previous thought about the grief exclusion to explain what's happening with someone. And after two weeks, if they continue to be sad, that's my understanding, if it's a two-week period, they would be diagnosed with a specific form of depression. And as a result, that young person would be prescribed antidepressants. Now, according to the research done by Johan Hari, he's saying that the research does not support that antidepressants actually have a significant positive impact on the teenage brain, on a young brain. And so instead of normalizing, right, and that's why in episode one, I talked about, you know, these increased rates of depression with increased rates of stress being pulled in different directions because of greedy institutions. It makes sense to me that some people would experience depression. I think we have to validate that, normalize that. And if someone was sitting before another and experienced an incredible personal loss like that, I think we'd, we would possibly, possibly be diminishing the reality of that person's lived experience by saying, you know, you need to take this antidepressant because you're experiencing a chemical imbalance and you have a low serotonin level. No, we need to say, no, The it, it seems quite apparent. We need to use some common sense here and say, you know, this person is experiencing a loss. Now, I had someone who had a discussion about this say, well, you know, what if someone, if it's too overwhelming and too difficult and they need to take an antidepressant to help them at least get some semblance of functioning inwardly, Otherwise, maybe they're just falling apart, but so that they can at least move through the world. You know what? Of course, that makes sense. But this idea that depression is something that is abnormal and problematic and is in need of being diagnosed, I think that's a concern. I think that we have to recognize that sometimes it makes sense to be sad and that there are things that we can do in terms of those different forms of treatment to help us get back on track. And sometimes taking drugs would not, taking medication would not be the answer. And what we might need to do is to engage in uh, authentic 
discussion and dialogue with someone else and talk about our feelings and realize that those feelings are information. The depression is information. It could be information about the depth of the sadness that we're feeling because of that the the relationship was so valued, was so precious, right? When we're talking about other forms of depression, it could be that the depression's telling us that there's something wrong in our world, that we're not feeling worthy or deserving, that, you know, we, we don't have a sense of status when we go to work, that we're valued. We might feel like we're replaceable. We might feel like I bought into this idea that if I make so much money and I have these things, I'll be happy. And guess what? I've pursued these things at the neglect of relationships. I, have, I wasn't there for my my child or my my partner and relationships were destroyed. And this makes sense that I'd be sad. So sadness, I think like a previous discussion, episode one, it's definitely not a pleasant experience, but I do believe that there's information there and that the information can be helpful in terms of telling us what's happening in our lives, how we're doing in this world, and it could point us in the direction of things that we might need to do so we can start to reclaim our lives. And once we reclaim our lives, once we stabilize, once we're able to get those good sleeps, once we're able to eat, once we're able to exercise, once we're able to challenge different kind of thought errors that we might have, then we can start to do the happiness work that we were talking about in episode one when we were talking about action for happiness, right? So right now, I think at the end of this discussion, it would be a great time to go to the Action for Happiness website and look and explore the 10 keys to happiness and look at things that we can do right now, those action steps that we can take to be happy. So this was my attempt to kind of wrap up what I felt was an incomplete discussion in episode four about depression and commonplace insanity. Yeah, and remember, in, in episode four, I also identified that commonplace sanity is kind of a playful diagnosis term that I've created to describe how I was feeling back at that point in my life. And at times, I, to this day, I still feel that, you know, geez, feel like I'm going, like I'm losing my mind here. Like what's going on? And once again, this is when I experienced the absurd. And that's, as I said, a whole other episode. I really wanted to tie the absurd into this discussion, but it just, it, there's too much to talk about. So I'm feeling more at peace with the uh, production of episode four, because episode five here, this follow-up kind of creates, it closes the circle. So I wish everyone the best evening, the best morning, the best moment possible. Be well, do well, and may the choices you make be the wisest ones possible in the moments that you meet. Salutations. Until next time.